Hey, welcome to a new uh, experimental podcast with me, your host, Alon Isaacs. I'm an associate editor at The Daily Journal. Um, I'm trying kind of this podcast out, which I envision to be about business ethics. But uh, if you have any comments, questions, concerns, ways to make the podcast better or worse, or you just want to send me some hate mail, uh, my email is Alon, I-L-A-N, Isaacs, I-S-A-A-C-S, at dailyjournal.com. Uh, and so without further ado, this is the inaugural episode of Batten and I with Alon Isaacs featuring David Enrich, who is the New York Times finance editor and former, formerly of the Wall Street Journal, and is the author of the New York Times bestseller, as well as the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Dark Towers, Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump, and an epic trail of destruction, New York Times finance uh, editor and author, uh, David Enrich. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. When I, when I was reading about the inside look at Deutsche Bank, you know, I'm looking at uh, when you write kind of early on about him, talking about Deutsche Bank, it had financed Auschwitz, it had serviced the Gestapo, it had sold the Nazis stolen gold. I mean, that is, that's, 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 that's superhero villain asking away. To me, my takeaway from that is less about Deutsche Bank having committed evil, although it certainly did commit evil. And it's more about how the power structures in place at the time and, and immediately following World War II were very forgiving toward Deutsche Bank and essentially turned a blind eye to its sins out of expedience. Because I, I think that's a pattern that ends up repeating itself in the modern era when you see a lot of uh, both American and German regulators in particular seeing Deutsche Bank committing these bad acts and basically forgiving them because Deutsche Bank seems essentially too big to fail or too big to challenge. And after the World War II, Deutsche Bank was accused by the U.S. of being a participant in war crimes. And it's the bank's leader was tried and convicted of being a war criminal himself. And the U.S.'s plan was for Deutsche Bank to be liquidated. They, the U.S. did not think this bank should exist anymore. It was so bad. And yet, through this kind of quirk of history, it survived because Ber Deutsche Bank was headquartered in Berlin, and Berlin, after the war, was split into four quadrants, and its, its headquarters happened to fall in the British quadrant. And uh, Germany, at that point, still owed Britain reparations for World War I, and Britain thought that if they were ever going to get that money back, they needed, Germany needed to have a strong economic recovery. And the key they thought to a strong economic recovery was a strong domestic bank. And so the British basically salvaged Deutsche Bank in the hopes that that would help Britain ultimately recoup the money that they were owed for World War One. And, and Abs, or Herman Abs, this, the guy who had been tried and convicted as a war criminal, very quickly after the war, not only you know, escapes punishment, but returns and becomes the leader of the bank again. And so Deutsche Bank, within a period of several years, uh, goes from being an entity that it is accused of being a war criminal and should be dissolved to being one of the kind of the Western world's uh, leading hopes for reconstructing Europe and or reconstructing Germany and rebuilding Europe. One thing that I thought... Um... What's interesting is kind of, again, almost the, 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 the cavalier way regulators had made uh, decisions with huge social, huge societal ramifications. So talking about a loan that Bankers Trust gave to Donald Trump, that was an unsecured loan, um, which he didn't pay back. And the bank's chairman says, uh, we were brain dead when we made that loan. And this is, that's the bank is Bankers Trust. And then later, uh, 
you write, quote, if the Fed could get the Germans to take bankers' trust off their hands, well, he would, it wouldn't be an American problem anymore, or so the central bankers figure. I mean, those are it, 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 just two yep. different sentences of just huge ramifications that are so kind of like, eh, you know, let's, put, let's have a bank by this bank and uh, eh, we shouldn't, have, you know, it's just, how do you kind of put that into context in a way of, I don't, I don't even think the context is like, it almost speaks for itself, right? I mean, this is, there were a lot of awful decisions made and a lot of irresponsible decisions made by a great many people. And obviously the bulk of the responsibility for all of this rests with the bad actors and just Deutsche Bank, but there's enormous responsibility that American regulators, among other regulators, share for this. And there's, but to me, the, the more damaging thing, if you look at the Fed is that, you know, they, since I believe 2002, have been warning Deutsche Bank and complaining to Deutsche Bank about the uh, it's the company's incapacity or unwillingness to fu- to police uh, its own systems against money laundering. And there's this is something in the early 2000s the Fed saw that Deutsche Bank was moving a lot of money with these Latvian banks that appeared to be money laundering on behalf of wealth, wealthy Russians. And the Fed kind of issued a written order, but did not impose even a monetary penalty, much less anything stronger than that on the bank. And over the ensuing 18 years, so up to the present day, the Fed has expressed concerns of varying degrees, like, I don't know, probably at least a half dozen times, probably more to Deutsche Bank, either privately or publicly, about the fact that it doesn't have systems in place to prevent money laundering. And and you look over that those intervening years, and it, from a combination of prosecutors and media reports, the bank over that period has has laundered tens of billions of dollars for criminal enterprises around the world. And so the Fed, in the Fed, meanwhile, is kind of sitting there on the sidelines, quietly nudging the bank over and over again. Yeah, you probably want to take a look at this. We're getting very frustrated with you, Deutsche Bank, things like that. And yet there's not, the Fed has great power over the bank that has just refused to exercise, which is that Deutsche Bank, as a German company, operates in the U.S. at the pleasure of American regulators. And that's not a God-given right. That's a privilege that can be revoked or can be threatened to be revoked at any time. And the Fed, for the most part, has sat on its hands. And again, you know, there are, it's a slightly more kind of nuanced and complicated decision-making system than just like, do we or do we not kick Deutsche Bank out of the US? But the Fed, as far as I can tell, and certainly from the perspective of people who work inside Deutsche Bank, really has been virtually a non-entity in this. And that, it that to me raises a whole lot of very serious questions about the point of having regulators that are essentially lapdogs for the industry. But it's not just true in the U.S. It's true in the U.K. to a large extent. It's especially true in Germany. And so Deutsche Bank managed to just keep steamrolling regulators all over the world for a lot longer than they should have. Well, in, and it took place, continued to take place well after it became very clear that Deutsche Bank was being run as a very out of control, kind of reckless and an often criminal institution. I kind of wanted to get into a question that I had all throughout reading your book, which is Donald Trump in your book defaults on loans, on the loans to Deutsche Bank, uh, sues them as well. And yet they give him loans uh, over and over again how he keeps getting loans, I think is kind of a fascinating insight into how he's able to kind of get people to do what he wants. How did he kind of get those loans at a great interest rate 
while having a history of kind of recklessness and defaulting against Deutsche Bank, the very bank that was giving him the loans yeah. again. I mean, it's pretty crazy. And it, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think you're wrong to be like a little confused by that because, you know, I've been covering banking for the better part of two decades now, and I have never seen anything quite like this. Um, and I, I think what Trump did, I'm not sure he meant to do this or not, but I think he ended up basically exploiting Deutsche Bank's greed and disorganization in a way that was, you know, with hindsight, uh, looks actually quite savvy. I'm not sure this was by design at the time, but that is the way it worked out. I mean, Deutsche Bank was very eager from the start of its relationship with Trump back in the late 1990s. It was very eager to develop a business on Wall Street and in the U.S. more broadly. And it was really hard for a bank that has basically an unpronounceable German name to, um, to do that. And um, so they needed to find clients that were off limits to the mainstream banking industry. And Donald Trump, with his history of defaults, was really fit that bill to a T. And that, for, that, that actually is, that was the defining trait of the Trump relationship at the beginning. And I think it really carried through to the end, where different divisions of Deutsche Bank would go down this road with Trump, even though there were all these red flags with both Deutsche Bank and other banks about Trump's business practices. And yet they were so desperate to make money off Trump and develop a relationship with a high profile kind of marquee name that they just threw caution to the wind. So in the end, it was Deutsche Bank's private banking division, which caters to the wealthiest of the wealthy. And that was doing this. And they, despite the fact that Trump had repeatedly defaulted on loans to many banks, including at least twice to Deutsche, on Deutsche Bank loans, the private uh, banking division thought this made good business sense because even though the loans were relatively low interest, they could charge big fees to Trump for the privilege of doing business with Deutsche Bank. And they could also, they also demanded that Trump uh, put a lot of money in wealth management accounts at the bank, which generated big fees. And so they really, and Trump managed to really take advantage of the fact that this is a bank that was desperate to make a name for itself, desperate to uh, make money, and really didn't care that much about the reputational baggage that its clients had, or the fact that particular clients like Trump had already gotten in trouble with other arms of the bank. And do you kind of see any parallels between kind of how he was able to get people to like him or get people to, to support him, I should say, and do what he wants and his popularity kind of like, cause I mean, that's the question a lot of people are asking is kind of what, how do you explain his popularity and his rise? And it seems to me, this is kind of, a, might be a pretty good way of looking at uh, one instance that actually would be pretty illuminating to how he's able to kind of get what he wants without the credentials that other yeah. people uh, similarly situated would be able to, to get. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I've thought about that. Yeah. And I think it's a little dangerous to make too much of that parallel because, look, at the end of the day, the bankers and Trump, they were not in this for friendship or loyalty or anything else. They were all in it for money. And, um, you know, I think on the margins, there were some kind of cultural benefits, I guess you could say, associated with doing business with Trump. And there's one kind of, classic example where uh, Trump offers as a reward a trip, like a, basically a big weekend trip to Mar-a-Lago for the sales guys who got a big bond deal 
done for him. But there's, um, in that case, that wasn't a question of whether will Deutsche Bank or will Deutsche Bank not do a deal. It was kind of a question of incentivizing employees to work a little bit harder uh, to get a deal done. And so I, I think in general, the this is really, I, I wouldn't draw too many parallels. And I, I think what has, one of the things that's really attracted uh, you know, millions of voters at Trump is this aura of his own success and that he just is kind of giving the middle finger to the establishment and which, you know, makes a certain amount of sense. And with Deutsche Bank, it's almost like the opposite in a sense, like he was managing to convince them that despite his public, you know, warts, essentially, that he was basically not not all that different from the other clients that they were lending to. I mean, he, so yeah, I would be careful about drawing too many parallels as tempting as that might be. I was just hoping you would explain uh, the last four years. Uh, nope, sorry. Sentence or less, you know? You do it, not even gonna try. <laughs> no. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court heard arguments about whether or not the House can subpoena financial documents and records uh, from Deutsche Bank that pertain and relate and are about Donald Trump finances and Donald Trump's relationship with Deutsche Bank prior to his presidency. Do you have kind of any insight into kind of what uh, those records, if what those might say or kind of what the damage would be if those were came to light? Yeah, I mean, I have a fair, a pretty good amount of insight into, I think, the types of records we're talking about. I, I'm not sure about the contents of the records, right, but right. I mean, it ranges from there are various tax returns that the bank has collected over the years, although the bank says it current does not currently possess Trump's personal tax returns, but um, they do have other tax returns of either Trump family members or some of his companies. They have very detailed financial records. I understand that they have kind of org charts basically that show, and Trump has hundreds of LLCs all over the world. And there are, and they're essentially maps that show how those different LLCs connect with each other that I believe are in Deutsche Bank's possession. And, and then they've got just fundamental banking, bank account information. I mean, to me, actually, I mean, that stuff is obviously could be, you know, very important for the world to see. Um, but the other thing that's being subpoenaed is our Deutsche Bank's own internal records. So not Trump's records, but the bank's own internal records about its relationship with Trump. And so the subpoenas have sought... Um, records of communication involving about the Trump relationship involving some specific Deutsche Bank employees. And the subpoenas have been redacted, so we can't actually see who those employees are, but it's almost certainly uh, Trump's personal bankers over the years, possibly among others. And so that could be very revealing because we've reported that there are, there have been these very kind of vicious fights inside the company about whether or not to do business with Trump. And, but finally, I think the most important thing is that the subpoenas seek any information related to potentially suspicious transactions that Deutsche Bank employees have detected inside the Trump accounts. And we know uh, that there have been those concerns among some employees. And I, I wrote a story about a year ago about a whistleblower down in Jacksonville, Florida, where Deutsche Bank has its big anti-money laundering operations, who um, had detected what she regarded as suspicious activity in the Trump and Kushner accounts and had tried to file a suspicious activity report with the government about this, but was blocked by her superiors. Um, and so the subpoenas, if Deutsche Bank complies with them and is told to comply with them by the court, will presumably be handing over pretty detailed records of 
the nature of those employee concerns, what the transactions were, who the money was going to, things like that. And so, I mean, that potentially could be extremely revealing and I think extremely damaging to the president potentially. And Trump's actions indicate that he very much hopes that this stuff will remain under risk. Make sure I understand. It would be kind. Of, would it be summaries of their of Deutsche Bank's internal kind of thoughts about whether to lend to Trump? Trump kind of those conversations about well, he's he might default on his loans versus you know the short term profits. Like those conversations and thought patterns would be potentially part of those subpoena documents. Yeah, I'm trying right. to pull up the subpoena as we're talking. Um, okay. It's been disclosed in a court filing. Any document possessed or generated by or communications involving, and then there's a bunch of Deutsche Bank employees who name, whose names are blacked out, relating to any of the above named individuals, entities, or accounts. So that's like all the Trump accounts, basically. Or right. transactions, particularly not, but not limited to any documents relating to any financial relationship, transactions, or, or ties between with foreign entities, essentially. And, but it goes on, there's a whole lot of stuff in, that's captured under that. So they're basically looking, and these subpoenas are very broadly written, and in the end, that might be their, their, their undoing, because they're so broadly written that, uh, you know, I, I think the, the Trump camp's argument before the court is that these really are just a political fishing expedition and uh, there's no legislative purpose and um, they're really just like looking to cause trouble. And, um, but look, I mean, there's, I, th I think one possibility here, and I'm not a Supreme Court expert, but I've been, you know, following this very closely and reading everything I can on this. It, one possibility is that the Supreme Court sends these subpoenas back to a lower court to basically narrow them and that one of the ways they could be very easily narrowed that I think would just avoid, basically moot Trump's objections would be to say, okay, we just want Deutsche Bank's own internal communications and records about its relationship with Trump, which is clearly not subject. Trump wouldn't, I don't think have grounds to stand in the way of that because it's not, they're not Trump's records, they're the bank's records. And, um, and those could still be extremely illuminating about Trump's underlying financial condition and the potential risks of doing business with him, which I think could show a lot about Trump's own uh, finances. If you look at kind of more uh, subjectively, Deutsche Bank was thinking regarding their loans to Donald Trump, and you have those kind of examples of that kind of, should we loan, should we not, here's, but here's what we're telling him. Is uh, there's almost like a two, not two-facedness, but two different sides. And There are multiple occasions, I, I think, in the book and that I've just learned otherwise that are where one division of the bank is like, you are, we cannot touch this guy. I mean, not only does he tend to default and he has, you know, this history of organized crime connections and there's some money laundering risk, but he sued us in court. He publicly humiliated us. Why on earth would we do business with this guy again? And then a person, a, a banker or executive from a different division is like, well, you know what, we think we've figured out a way to make a little bit more money out of him. So we're going to go ahead and do it. And without fail, up until 2016, when the relationship was severely curtailed, without fail, up until that point, the people on the side of doing business, do, making more money, trying to make the relationship work, they prevailed every single time. And, and it's really just the bank, again, it was Trump, you know, deliberately or not, managing to exploit the company's never-ending greed and complete and utter disorganization. And that, that's just the last point is what I was trying to jump in for. Is it your understanding that it was 
disorganization and the fact that, you know, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing or just the internal politics was such that uh, if one side has a chance to make a little more money, that's the side and an argument is going to win regardless of kind of long-term effects or reputational damage or it's both. a combination. Yeah. yeah, it's both. I mean, there were, uh, and one of the things in the reporting of this book, I mean, I, I talked to or tried to talk to every single person who was involved in the lending decisions at the bank over the years. And I, I didn't talk to every single one, but I talked to a lot of them on every single transaction that was done. And, you know, the explanations... There's a lot of internal politics at play. There's a lot of greed at play, but there are a number of cases where the right hand simply did not know what the left hand was doing or had previously done. And, and you know, it's a big bank with a lot of people and it's, you know, you can kind of see how in an organization with tens of thousands of employees, maybe there's some room for that kind of miscommunication. But, you know, again, having covered banks for a long time now, including some very messed up banks, uh, I've never seen anything like this. I mean, there's, you know, you need to be able to know who you've lent money to in the past and what the outcome of those loans has been. And the fact that Deutsche Bank on a number of occasions, just there was just complete institutional ignorance about what it had done in the past is, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's just very bad. There was kind of the, the immoral parts of it, but there's also kind of this level of weird incompetence. I mean, this is kind of, you know, one of the major banks in the entire world. For example, there's one one scene that I couldn't. I, it shocked me that it was in like a boardroom of a major bank, uh, talking about derivatives. When the bankers, there's three. One day in 1993, Mitchell, Brokesmith, and Bright went upstairs to deliver a presentation to the bank's board about why derivatives were not intrinsically dangerous. Bright droned on and on. At least two board members nodded off. Afterward, the men rode the elevator downstairs together. Mitchell congratulated, congratulated Bright on his presentation. What do you mean, Edson? Bright asked. They literally fell asleep. Edson guffawed. That's what we want. And, you know, looking back now, maybe derivatives weren't a huge part of the market there, but now they're, you know, in the trillions. And to think that one of the largest banks made, you know, kind of the presentation of the board about whether or not they're inherently immoral, you know, yeah. happens with two board members falling asleep and the people who make the presentation who are also the ones who stand the most to gain if it is deemed moral and acceptable, they'll financially gain. So certainly you would have more um, uh, interest in staying awake. And I, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's, I think at a fundamental level, one of the things that's gotten Deutsche Bank in so much trouble over the years is that it is at its heart always a German bank. And so you have people in on the German supervisory board who are basically in charge of reining in the more aggressive kind of impulses of the company. You have people who have no experience in investment banking, no experience in Wall Street. A lot of them are labor leaders or, you know, people from academia or the government. And again, I'm not saying that's a bad way to have a board set up, but the reality is you had a lot of people on these uh, oversight boards who really just did not understand the nitty gritty of how Wall Street made its money and how it kind of modern uh, kind of cutting edge financial engineering worked. And, you know, in a healthy company with a strong corporate culture, you would not have people on the business side trying to take advantage of that ignorance and of that lack of sophistication. You would recognize that that's 
in a healthy company, you would recognize that it's important. It's a good thing for the company to have rigorous checks and balances and for everyone to understand what's going on and to ask what might seem like stupid fundamental questions, but that lead people to challenge their own assumptions and rethink how they're doing things. Deutsche Bank was not a company with a good corporate culture though. And there's, and that's in part because they just, it was this mishmash of different people and different institutions that were all kind of combined together and so there's a complete lack of oversight at the board level. And instead of viewing that as a problem, the guys on the business side, guys like Edson Mitchell, uh, and even more so Joe Ackerman, who is one of Edson's kind of successors, what, they really just took advantage of this. They saw that they saw an opportunity to push the envelope further and to make even more money in the short term and to really step on the gas. When in reality, this is a fundamental weakness of the company that there was no capacity to to monitor and to govern and to and to kind of protect the bankers and traders from their own worst impulses. And so, at the end of the day, and I, you know, when assessing blame for the catastrophe that Deutsche Bank has become, it's very easy. And I think a lot of people in Germany point their fingers at these American cowboys who came in and just ran roughshod over this kind of proud, iconic German institution. And there's truth to that. And I think that's a valid critique, but that's only, that's at best half the story, right? And there's, it was a complete and utter failure of supervision, leadership, and governance in Germany as well. Just with people getting so eager to just have the profits that these Wall Street guys were generating and just not tapping on the brakes and not having the courage and convictions to say, wait a second, I don't understand how you guys are making this money. This really does not make sense to me. Something doesn't smell quite right. And instead they just turned a blind eye and for the most part, so did regulators. And so it was, it, it became kind of a perfect storm of ignorance, incompetence and greed and disorganization that, it, you know, that that's not a good combination of uh, forces to have inside a very large, powerful financial institution. Um, really appreciate you joining us um, on the podcast. Really illuminating. Really appreciate you taking the time and uh, have a good day. Yeah, same to you. Thank you. All right, thanks. Bye. Right, bye. That was a fascinating conversation with New York Times finance editor and author David Enrich. I hope it illuminates some of the issues relating to uh, this kind of Supreme Court hearing on Tuesday. And if not, I hope it was at least a little interesting and entertaining. Uh, thank you very much.